everyone. Welcome aboard the Soul Train. Coming at you live. This is the Burn and Return live podcast. Welcome to Burn and Return. This is going to be the show where we burn down the week's top agricultural and turf grass news. I'm your host, Matt Martin, and I'm also featuring my two cohorts today. Ray, you go first. Who are you, sir? Yeah, I, I'm the Green Doctor, uh, broadcasting from my coconut shell out in Hawaii. <laughs> Glad you're here, Ray. And Ryan, who are you, sir? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I'm Ryan DeMay, and I'm broadcasting from a suburban house in Columbus, Ohio. Look at that. We've got one hell of a ragtag team of mostly sober <laughs> individuals who are going to be presenting, hopefully, some entertainment for at least the next hour or so. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is going to be episode, a formal episode number one, as we did the pilot, I believe, the previous time. So we're going to try and jump in and make this everything we expect it to be. So to get started, we're going to jump immediately right into our doom, doom, doom headlines. All right, we're going to start off with the number one story of the week, and it is going to be the Tokyo Olympic Stadium grass delivered in Georgia. And kind of a highlight here is that I'm going to go ahead and blow this out of the water. Uh, it was developed in Georgia out of Tifton, Georgia, one of our favorite places for turf grass research, the Bermuda cultivars, and it looks like TIFF sport is what is chose. And I, I'll go back to this because it's really the only thing I know about any of the Tifton varieties and how they're developed. So what I do know about TIFF sport is that it is a mid-iron Bermuda that was blasted with radioactive cobalt. That's how they developed that. Uh, and then from there, it was propagated into a full-fledged actual turf grass. So interesting, it was chosen for here. Uh, uh, Ryan, do you have any additional input on uh, TIFF sport? Do you see it around? Is it, is it still popular? Or has it been pretty much snuffed out by TIFF stuff? Why do you think they went this route? I'm not exactly sure why TIFF Sport was chosen, other than if they had a sod producer over there that was growing it and they were pretty happy with, um, you know, how it's performed year over year. You know, they got lucky uh, in that it's been hotter than hell over there uh, for the first, you know, week or so of the games. And I think it's supposed to stay fairly warm, too. So um, I know that they're just getting some of the other... Uh, newly developed cultivars over there i know tahoma 31 uh, just went in to a couple of farms over that way just last year as a matter of fact and starting to get used in golf courses there so i'm not sure kind of what the inventory was going into it i'm not sure if tiff tuff's even there i'm really not even sure the tiff cuff would would last ray tell me a little bit more because i am not a climatological expert on um the greater tokyo area what what would one expect to see there I know that golf's big there, and I know that in, a, in some of those courses, they'll have kind of a warm season and a cool season uh, set of greens and things like that. But, you know, on a summer Olympic Games type schedule, is this what you'd be thinking too? Yeah, I'd be thinking in terms of Bermuda grass because this is Tokyo in the summer up to 100 degrees and up to 100% humidity. And it stays mm. that way, you know, up until fall. And then we switch. Then it gets into 
40 degrees, 30 degrees, maybe even a little bit of snow. And then springtime comes around and then you do it all over again. And I know I've been advised by various people, if I ever want to travel to Japan, don't do it in the summer. Really? Really? Uh, I can tell you... Yes, I have been to Japan once in the summer, and it was the most excruciating thing I have ever felt in my life. I've spent plenty of time in Florida. I've spent, uh, I I have experienced heat. I lived in Augusta, Georgia, and even in Augusta, no lie. I mean, there were days, and I would say there was over 20 days through the course of the summer. It's just unbearable being outside, and it had nothing on what Japan was like during the summer. Um, and I was not in Tokyo. I was a little south of Tokyo in Yokohama, which is where my wife is from. And, uh, and it is, it is just so painfully hot and you can't escape it. Um, because they're not, they're not real big on air conditioner over there. You know, you, you don't come across, you know, a, a six foot four, 250 pound man just cruising up and down main street in downtown Tokyo. Right. And uh, and so if it's 82 degrees in a in an establishment, that's you've got ample temperature there to to regulate their their body size. For me, however, I mean, you just I I, I felt like I should sit in a in a tub of cold water perpetually. I would go walk at five o'clock in the morning because I had real bad jet lag, right? And uh, and then of course my father-in-law and I would be getting drunk all night, so. I'd get up at, at three, four, five o'clock in the morning, go walk a couple miles and just sweat out the sins of the night before and then come back and just sit in the cold shower and just let it beat on because I knew my wife had like a list of activities planned for what we were going to do. And it was just excruciatingly painful. So um, it makes sense that they chose Bermuda uh, for this time of year. Why tip sport? I don't know. Is it the textures, the playability? Is it the availability? You know, like you said, it's, it's all, it's all kind of interesting how... Uh, that was the particular cultivar that was chosen, though. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll say is this. It's, it's two weeks, right, Ray? Go ahead, go ahead, Ray. It's just a matter of, you know, availability, and I don't think they even have to think about long longevity, you know, of the field because it's just going to be for this event, and then it's done. You know, it's it's gone. Right. There's no point in investing in some kind of a you know super grass because of course if they wanted to be really experimental and cutting edge and avant-garde they'd be sodding the field with some kind of zoysia that's interesting yeah there's there's some stuff on that that uh i was just hearing about uh here this week that there is it's not out yet. It's still uh, experimental, but um, I might be getting sent some here to take a look at it. But it's uh, a very, very, very aggressive, and what I'm told, zoysia grass that is going to make a play at not necessarily like high end sports fields, but more of like uh, lower level recreational fields and things like that where it can be doesn't necessarily get the abuse of what like a, a high use field would get, but is still uh, going to be very easily maintained, at least for the type of people that we've been maintaining fields like that. So I'd be interested to see that, but yeah, the, this is disposable stuff. You know, this is like, you know, we were seeing pictures of that and 
maybe we can uh, throw that up and talk about that real quick. But they're doing a couple of games. Uh, Florida Cup, which is at Camping World Stadium in Orlando, and then Jerry World down there in Dallas. They're doing uh, some friendly soccer matches. Uh, and in Dallas, they're literally rolling the sod right over top of geotextile on the concrete floor of the stadium. It's just thick cut Bermuda sod. Roll it out. Roll it with a two-tone roller. Keep it watered. And then uh, paint the hell out of it and play the soccer game on it. So, yep, yep. It's a cottage industry right now. Yeah, and uh, and you know they've got two weeks on it, and so they can trample the hell on it and then discard it. And I think one of the main reasons it's not used in the U.S., from what I understand, is its propensity to revert back to uh, other cultivars. Um, that may be just just stuff I hear round town that may or may not be factually accurate but i have heard a lot of that specifically with um with tiff sport and going back to uh, years previous actually had somebody reach out to me about it that uh at least suggested that and got a uh, university of georgia involved and all that fun stuff but we'll move on to number two here and the headline from number two and this is always interesting to me is pivot bio rakes in 430 million dollar round d capital Jeez. raise as modified, uh, modified micros prove their worth in agriculture. So uh, for uh, those of you that are uh, not up to date with this, what companies like uh, AgBiome and uh, here also with, with Pivot Bio is that they are modifying these microbes to, ha- uh, to take the things they may currently do and amplify them to where it can actually have a real agronomic benefit. And I don't think there's anybody out there that says, um, uh, uh, that under zero cir- circumstances whatsoever are microbes going to provide any sort of benefit for you. There, there have been plenty of microbes identified. The part where it starts to, to lead into sneaky, sneaky, squirrely, uh, may or may not be factual territory is when um, you start seeing the claims that are made out of these types of products. And the suggestion is that you're going to have a, a statistically significant impact where uh, most of the studies that are out there show an impact, but it may not be statistically significant or it may not be replicable across a variety of territories or um, different, you know, even something as simple as how quickly a soil dries down and how completely it dries down uh, may inhibit some of the effects that we get out of, you know, your different bacillus varieties and stuff that, you know, kind of dominate the market right now. But what they've done is taken it and taken it to a whole new level. And AgBiome has done this on the fungicide of things. And now, Obviously, Pivot, Pivot Bio has been around. They've had some good success. But $430 million. There is nothing in the agricultural industry right now that is drawing that level of investment that I'm aware of. Half a billion dollars in a single funding round. Um, I've seen some big numbers out of Anuvia down in Florida. And, uh, and you know, so we're talking about 70 to $120 million. But $430 million. What do you guys have on this? Well, you know, for all the pushback that GMO crops have gotten, right, over the years, I wonder how people think if, yeah, if we if we move down the food chain a little bit, like where where do we draw the line and say that's okay, right? Are those same people going to get riled up and pissed off about this, right, and and how that affects the downstream stuff? I also, you know, it, it's it's a lot of the same thing with. Uh, the whole and and I'm going to say something, Ray, that's going to trigger you. Please cover your ears or lean in, you know, a little bit. But 
soil health, right? The whole soil health movement. <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying that it's dumb or stupid or anything like that. I'm just saying that right now we neither have the means nor the methods completely to wrap our arms around that. And to Matt's point, to be able to definitively say, Hey, this is making an impact and we can draw across, you know, and extrapolate that because it works in North Dakota, it's going to work in Eastern Tennessee. And because it works in Eastern Tennessee, it should work in West Texas. There's just way too many variables, I think, to isolate out and to be able to say definitively that this stuff is going to work. I'm not saying that, you know, it's it's dumb or it's snake oil yet. I think there's a lot a lot to prove. But if you got $430 million, you better be able to figure that shit out. <laughs> yeah, you, you better be able to figure it out. And, you know, to add to this, what is the source subject or the sensitive subject right now? Modified microbes right you know we're talking about modified viruses modified bacteria mm. that is you know the super touchy sketchy subject because what's happening right now uh people are getting into cussing matches over whether a virus was modified and who paid for that funding <laughs> to have that yeah, done say we <laughs> Can we, can we get a gain of function test here on the on the modified microbes? Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. can we get a gain of function test to, you know, or or something similar? I mean that that just uh, made my radar you know go on full alert when I saw modified microbes and I thought, I uh, I mean, do we have the safeguards in place? Do we know what those microbes do once they're modified? I mean. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know because, okay, what if we create, instead of something harmless, we create the next, say, bacterial wilt on accident? Yeah. Right? Yeah, and one of the things that, that, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they specifically note in here, and this is what, what I thought was interesting, is, um, you know, it's not as simple as, uh, a quote unquote, and I use this term loosely, uh, hacking the genome to turn on and off uh, nitrogen production. It's increasing efficiencies in some of the physiological processes that take place. Um, so what they specific here, uh, what they spe uh, spe specified here is, um, say for instance, breaking into the enzymatic pathway from sugar to nitrogen can be improved and thus the threshold for when the microbes decide to undertake the process rather than, uh, rest can be changed as well. So it's instead of turning it off during that sugar to nitrogen process, it's keeping it on and supercharged at all times. Right. And also oh. they're talking about their, their product here is, um, right now, they're only replacing 40 pounds per acre of synthetic nitrogen, which would be a pound per thousand square feet, which is significant. That is significant. And But on the flip side of this, too, is that as the process, uh, you, you harvest this material, the microbes die at that point. And so it does require—so it's nothing that you're making this gigantic permanent in the world. It's still functioning. They're just taking one input and replacing it with another. And, you know, this could be totally crazy. This too could be really silly. Um, but what does it take to modify these microbes in terms of energy 
and uh, 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 yeah, really. What would the if this is going to be a sustainable product, a renewable product? What does it take to mifications at scale uh, to take the place of urea? You, do you see what I'm saying there? You see what I'm saying? Like if no, it takes, yeah, 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 yeah. Know, like it's a you know it's a replacement, right? You're trying you're trying to you know uh, play on words here, but subvert the process, right? The traditional agricultural cropping scheme such that you can replace that with this as who knows 25% of your inputs right and to that point can you still hear me yeah i got you okay good yeah. okay sorry you, got you guys you. went loud and clear right? me on the screen jay pink you messed me up there no it's okay it's uh <laughs> you know so if you're if you're talking about using this as a tool in the toolbox absolutely i think they can get there the the thing that I think about too, and this is just me being uh, an egocentric uh, turf guy, right? Is what do you, what happens when you put that in a perennial cropping system, right? Now, without those being removed and those putting back in the system, is there a point at which uh, you know we reach equilibrium of hey, it's time to stop because we have too much in the system? So I think there's a lot of questions that have to get answered and there's so many moving parts. I, you know, I don't think $430 million is going to, you know, touch the tip of the iceberg. So it's where do you start and how do you bring that to market? That, that's what I'd be interested in. Somebody asked in the, in the uh, discussion here in the chat, Matt, is if you were a class D investor, what would you expect on your return of $430 million? 10X. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. We got a lot of work to absolutely. do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Bet to capture the $200 agricultural fertilizer market. Like that's, that is where they're going is they want to capture $100 million. Kudos. I think, Matt, we're getting a little uh, we're getting a little choppy from you. All right, here I'm gonna refer. Ryan and Ray, I still see you guys coming in nice and clear. Yeah. Well, and to uh, you know, speak to that uh, you know point, if we're talking about gain of uh, function uh what are the requirements for that to be say released out into the environment that's like my next uh <laughs> you know my next well, question like, is what are the requirements <laughs> yeah it's going to be a big deal right i mean all this stuff has just been brought into much more clear focus of how far is too far to sit there and manipulate nature, right? I mean, we don't want uh, Jurassic Park turf, right? And you get people being eaten and I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, I hate, I, I hate sounding like the, the curmudgeon or the guy who thinks that things are never going to change, get better, improve, and it's not going to take something wildly and drastically different than people think are possible to do that. That said... 
I agree. I agree with you, and I think Matt, you would you would agree with this too that being responsible about responsible about it. Number one is is of the utmost importance, and number two, the way in which we capture this data and um, run the data through analysis to make sure that this is actually moving the needle. Those are probably the two most important things. And I don't know when there's investors that want four plus billion dollars that you're going to get all of that stuff nice and neatly packaged. No, and not. Uh, <laughs> it's it's hard to say. Um, here are some of the investors. Um, Generation Investment Management, G2 Venture Partners. I've heard of them in the ag space before. Uh, Rockefeller uh, Capital Management, uh, DCVC. Um, Timasek, uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Continental Grain Company, Prelude Ventures, Pavilion Capital, Bungie Ventures, uh, Techfin Ventures, and Roger Underwood. So uh, a lot of names there, a lot of people to please, and definitely some major, major power players in the, uh, in the venture capital and uh, in investment portfolio space. So I, it'll be real interesting to see how this goes. It, it's clear that if there is a failure, it's not going to be due to um, a lack of, of available money. It does not seem like money is, a, uh, is, is an issue here. Um, it really it comes down to is how quickly can the science progress and um, making sure the science progresses in such a way that is uh, uh, safe and, uh, and repeatable, right? So... I don't know. I, it's something I'm definitely going to keep an eye on as it progresses because there's uh, there's there's just a, a lot. <laughs> I mean, there there's a lot that can go wrong and a lot that can go right uh, either way. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on to headline number three here, and uh, we're going to call this one the evaluation of humic fertilizers applied at full and reduced nitrogen rates on Kentucky bluegrass quality and soil health. Um, so this is a study out of Iowa State that uh, that Ryan found for us here, and I'm not going to go through this too terribly much, and I'll let Ryan uh, kind of chime in on it. And he did say that the addition of humic substances could be incorporated to, into a more sustainable and environmentally friendly uh, turf grass fertilizer program. However, that uh, in terms of these products providing a major statistically significant uh, with high repeatability uh, performance increase over um, enhanced efficiency uh, traditional fertilizers we have, say for instance, um, like a stabilized urea, it wasn't that impressive. Um, at the lower rates, you tended to get uh, a little bit of decline in performance like you would expect to see. And at the higher rates with the addition of it, you tended to get a bit of a better performance, more similar to what we would see out of enhanced efficiency. I don't know why they did not test polymer-coated urea in this instance. Um, that would be an interesting thing in the, the obvious thing because they did test a polymer-coated, humic-coated urea, but not mm -hmm. just a straight polycoat. So... Uh, Ryan, I'll let you start to dig into here and, and uh, kind of bring us up to speed on it. No, I mean, I think the whole point of this was looking at in the marketplace, like, you know, we've, we've, we've heard humic, humic, humic. And now um, with, you know, Anderson's coming out with a humic urea here just a few years ago, and now it's, you know, becoming more widely accepted. You know, the, this was a, a fairly practical study to go ahead and look and say, okay, if we've got 
these products in the marketplace, what are they, you know, how can we compare those two industry standards? And so I agree with you that, you know, the, the, the data kind of shows that, you know, there's not a ton of difference, but there was some, some interesting stuff, right. In terms of, um, you know, when we talk about root mass and, uh, some of the other growth characteristics of these plants, when they look at Kentucky bluegrass that, okay, what is it that we're getting from humic that's making this better? And I don't think that they could definitively say that. And the other thing too, is that they're talking about being able to drop and lower nitrogen rates, you know, year over year by incorporating this into the program. Now, the interesting thing here, I think, and I know you've talked about this a little bit, Matt and Ray, I know you'd probably agree. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you're looking at this in a two year study. It's a very small time horizon to look at this and say, okay, Hey, the addition of humic helped us lower our nitrogen rates. Well, as we continue to pump humic into that system, right. And we change, you know, at least to a certain degree, the carbon to nitrogen ratio in that system, there's going to be a point where we've, we've passed the, the point of diminishing returns in terms of carbon inputs vis-a-vis through humic acid. So I wonder if they push this out to a five or a seven or a 10 year study, how would these plots rate and how would they look? And I hope that, that somebody else will pick this up and see how it goes. There's, uh, I think it's still going on. Michigan State has uh, some plots at lawn height they've had now for like 25 years. I'll see if I can dig up the link and send it to J Pink. But uh, these plots all have lysimeters underneath of them so they can, you know, they can track nutrient fate, particularly N, and look at, you know, when we apply X, what comes through the system, so what's getting, you know, metabolized by the plants and then what's leaching out. I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, in a long-term study, especially these uh, particular plots that have been around for a long time and are mimicking what a mature lawn would look like. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a very broad statement to say that, Hey, because you're using humic, you can lower nitrogen rates. Like this is the exact kind of study that a marketing group would pick up on and be like, oh yeah, look right there. That's it. See, it, that's our, that's the the thing that we needed to go show and tell everybody. It's like, well, if you read a little bit more deeply, you look at the data and then you think about this in more practical terms, right? For turf grass managers or homeowners or whoever, eh, it's not quite everything it's cracked up to be not really because i i agree with the idea that two years is a really short time in terms of testing regarding a response to a product you need to basically take that turf area through multiple applications and multiple variations in weather conditions because uh, I I read a lot of the two-year herbicide trials too and what typically happens to those herbicide trials is one year there's adequate rainfall on their non-irrigated test sites another year it's hot dry and horrible for the grass or else uh, opposite case happens and there's just too much rain and their product is just washed out. So if you have your testing done and in your two years of testing, your conditions are on opposite extremes, that is not a good basis to 
gather data from, it needs to be averaged out over what I would call more normal and average conditions in order for it to have like true, you know, power of, uh, you know, the data has to have power of validity. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, here's, here's also the, the big missing piece when it comes to humic would be, what is your source material, right? What is the extraction process? Is it extracted at all? Or is it just Leonard I, or, um, because all of those are going to play into, uh, the results you get out of the final product. And we'll, we can dive into that a little later because we've got another study related to humic that we're going to look at there. Um, but, you know, in all of these humic products are actually coming from the Andersons here. And Andersons has their own unique process where they are taking a raw linardite and then they granulate it with a bunch of catalyst chemicals or, or um, I, I use chemicals loosely there um, with catalysts, I'll say metals, right? And the idea is that when it comes in contact with water, it alters the pH uh, much higher in order for um, the release of the humic substances out of this linardite. Because raw linardite is all of those humic substances are just still highly oxidized and quote unquote unplant available. It has to be, um, you have to go either, either way with it. You either have to go high pH and capture the, the humic acid fraction of it or go low pH and capture uh, the fulvic fraction of it. Right. So kind of a, um, it's, these are purely related to the Andersons. And while I think this is, this is good information we're getting out of here. Um, you know, a couple of the notes too, that are, that are also in here, uh, humic fertilizer treatments had minimal effect on soil, physical and chemical properties. Um, the the one that actually had the lowest amount of humic substance was one of the better performers um, in year number two, and that was the black gypsum, uh, which is primarily gypsum with a very very fractional amount of of humic content in it, and that uh, tended to be at the higher end of the food chain in terms of the testing metrics that they used here. So, um, and then of course they also note here. Um, it needs further research. Um, uh, research should be conducted to determine the optimal application timings and rates of humic substances. Um, and then also further research is needed to determine if end rates could be reduced further. So, um, and you know, you see here roughly a 25% reduction in nitrogen rate and then replace with this to have a, a, an equal performance rate of 100% of a, of a nitrogen rate. So, it's kind of kind of interesting to uh, to say the least, and I think it's trending in the right way, and we'll see how it plays out over time. And uh, you can see where the and I love this slide right here because you see the PCHCU, which is a polycoat humic coated urea. I think the obvious thing to test for right there would next be um, uh, PCU or PCSEU um, hmm. to, to to give a, a a fair analysis, but that gets glossed over, but we don't write the rules of this. And I promise you, Iowa state didn't either. This is, uh, uh, Anderson's funny. Oh, yeah, they're going to test exactly yeah. what the, exactly what the Anderson <laughs> says. And there's not going to be any wiggle room on it whatsoever, regardless of what gets collected. The only thing that's going to be reported on is what Anderson's allows to be reported. So that is it. Um, 
All right, that's going to take us through the headlines. But before we move into the actual burn and return function here, uh, for those of you that are tuning in live right now, um, obviously this is uh, it, this is live, and because you are pay, paying members, um, uh, then that's why you get to hear it live. But it's going to go to the public here in a few days after we get it edited down and that fun stuff. And so, what we are going to do to further the independent production of this type of content is we are going to try to remain independent and not become shills of the industry to not have Andersons come on here and tell us what we can and can't say. And to do that, we are starting a Patreon. And if you feel ever so inclined that the content that we put out is of worthy worthiness to produce more of it, then please consider joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash burn and return. Uh, this money is going to go to pay the guys that actually put this together. And, uh, and that's, that's not me. That's Ray. That's uh, Jay pink. And, 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 uh, and that's Ryan DeMay because these are the guys that are taking the time out of their busy schedule to put this together for us. So if you enjoy our content, if you want to support independent creators, continuing to remain independent, to be able to produce content, consider supporting us on, uh, Patreon, patreon.com forward slash burn and return. Uh, also, because I am a shill, uh, uh, please go to honehealth.com forward slash grass factor. I'm just kidding. I reached out to these people specifically. They did not reach out to me. I reached out to them and, uh, and I said, you know, if, uh, if, if, um, I would love to go through your process. And if it feels like it would be a good fit for us, um, I have a male dominated, um, uh, viewership, um, and there may be people that are in similar situations to me. And the situation I found myself in is that I'm in my mid thirties. Uh, I'm, I'm overweight and I'm perpetually tired and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think, I think that's an old Alcoholics Anonymous phrase. If I'm, if I recall correctly, uh, it's been a long time since I've been to one of those meetings, but, <laughs> but, but I, 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 that's really what it came down to. And I was tired of blaming it on uh, being old and getting old because I'm 35. My wife is three and a half years older than me and she does not have the same symptoms of fatigue and anxiety and uh, a, a just a generalized fear of being in public and not being able to handle your emotions very well. And so I reached out to Hone Health. I had my test done. It was only 45 bucks. I got tested. They looked at it. And sure enough, I was I'm clinically diagnosed as low testosterone. Um, my, my testosterone levels were lower than 400. My free testosterone levels were lower than 10. And, uh, and for someone my age, that is not normal. That is not good. And, uh, and it was great because it was quick. It was easy. It was painless. I had my, um, my appointment with my doctor. I talked to him and, uh, and it was, it was, it was so interesting and it, and it made me feel so much better to, to talk to him. Uh, when he said to me, he's like, you have to understand as low testosterone as you are right now at your age, this is going to be life changing for you. And, uh, and if there's ever anything I wanted to hear, it was that at this point in my life, right? Uh, because, because, you know, carbon earth almost killed me and I'm still trying to recover from that spiritually, physically, psychologically, emotionally, all that fun stuff. And, uh, and, you know, I have been training and I've lost a lot of weight and I want to continue to put an investment into myself. And that's what hone health is given me. So if you feel like supporting the show, honehealth.com forward slash grass factor and get started for only $45. All right. Now we're going to move into the segment we call the burns. (laughs) (laughs) I love 
I don't know how I put that together. That was one of those things. Uh, burn number one. So this is going to be breaking down some of the hottest information from this week's headlines. We're going to dive in on this and uncover what's right and potentially mostly here what we're looking at is what's wrong. Uh, so number one, <laughs> I love this. Flo Canna admits employee mowing grass calls the Redwood Valley broiler fire. Lord have mercy. Um, mm. And... If anybody's been Aww. paying attention to anything, uh, I, I'm sure you've you've heard about this particular fire, and uh, and it came from a lawnmower. So, and especially over in California, you know, this is going to come down on the fate of everyone who mows grass, unfortunately. And what a terrible thing because it was it was very very widespread and uh, and and oh man, not good, gentlemen. What do you think? What what do we think of this? What are the repercussions? Uh, you're, uh, you know, uh, you know, carb compliant, right? That's the the California Air Resource Board has been a big thing for a long time. And then, um, you know, Ray, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You've been around a lot longer, but virtually all of the safety features, emissions features, and uh, you know, all the goofy gas cans and everything like that—that that has all been a result of the state of California. Right? Am I am I am I correct in saying that? No, no. Actually, <laughs> okay. A lot of a lot of the restrictions regarding mufflers on power equipment are USDA forest fire prevention. Because you see on a on a mower or a string trimmer or blower, as part of the muffler there's supposed to be what's called spark arresting equipment mm -hmm. so that a stray piece of say carbon from the uh, cylinder head doesn't get shot out of the exhaust as a glowing ember into say a, a pile of super dry pine needles because what happens ryan when a hot spark gets shot into a pile of dry pine needles uh, I'm going to say that you're going to end up on the news. That's probably what's going to happen. Okay. Okay. What if you do your gender and... reveal party and, and that happens? Oh, uh, yeah. You're, you also end up on the news. No, wait a minute. You get taken to jail and you're going to appear before, before a judge to explain why you caused a forest fire. But, you know, I'm familiar with spark arresters and etc because even before a forest fire risk one of the most commonly things see i see in in my area is people drilling out those spark arrestor devices on their mufflers <laughs> they drill them out ryan and all like like even on like say your push mower the the muffler gets rusty, gets rotten, gets old. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon for the operator of that mower to say, eh, I don't need it, so I'll just run it dirty. And in the meantime, uh, that operator probably doesn't give a damn about how loud it is because he has earmuffs on. But he should give a damn because... The whole purpose of that muffler or whatever 
is largely to prevent hot embers from being shot out of that mm-hmm. engine into combustible material. Okay. That, that is the whole purpose yeah. of it. <laughs> well, and the so unfortunate they, thing, is, I was just going to say, the unfortunate thing here is that it, it's just going to come back to, well, they're mowing the grass and that's how it started. And that's the thing. That's the message that will carry on. Go ahead, Matt. Well, they said they pre proactively reached out. They felt like they had enough information to indicate that the fire started on their property and they believe, and this is according to their PR, um, they believe <laughs> the blade of a mower operated by their employees struck a rock that caused a spark that caused the fire. Right. And Gee. so they wanted to get out ahead of it, reached out into the fire investigator and brought them over to their property and said, All right, let's start taking a look at let's taking a look at it here. Uh, because, you know, we care about our community and we want to make sure that, um, we, you know, we're dedicated to keeping our employees, neighbors and local communities safe. So, you know, I, 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 whether or not they have definitively caused this yet is yet to be unturned. But I've got to say from a company standpoint to reach out to an environment, a fire investigator and be like, hey, guys, I'm about 90 percent confident we did it. <laughs> they're pretty confident it happened on their property and you know could it have been a mower maybe could it have been you know someone who got fired and you know threw you know took a rip off a bong and and threw it into the uh into a brush pile or something started? <laughs> could be you don't know you know they could have sat down this could have been a two-day meeting where they all sat down looking at each other and they're like all right guys what in the hell are we going to tell the fire investigator because we can't tell them about billy bob throwing the bong do you no, think anybody's yeah. ever paid a eight-figure uh, civil fine in all cash? <laughs> I, I, it, it is quite possible, Ryan. It is quite possible. But they just roll okay, in with those like qu- duffel bags from the movie Heat and just slide them, slide them across. Like, and we know it's all there. You know, we weighed it down to the gram. And and, and you know what? To, to more seriously, here's my question. It sounds to me like they were mowing or cutting a rough area that's not even ornamental turf. And mm-hmm. now, guess what? I'm ultra-triggered. I'm ultra-triggered right now by that because my question becomes... Why the fudge are you mowing and trimming a rough area that is not ornamental or sports turf? Why are you doing it even? Why? And I think this is what the uh, you know environmentalists, whatever you want to call those folks, uh, are going to hang their hats on and say that people can't be left to have these decisions you know, to where they should and shouldn't mow on their property. And therefore we need to take that away from them. And I, I, I truly actually, think that you're going to start seeing that in, in local actually, areas to start. Actually, Ryan, I have to kind of, you know, go even further in that. Guess what? The environmentalists themselves caused this, Ryan. They caused it. Do you know I, why they caused it? Tell me. It's because... The environmentalists are the ones that uh, have a mowing and string trimming fetish. Okay? 
they don't let people like me do what I normally do with non-cultivated, non-ornamental, and non-sports turf type areas because Chernobyl was not just a special mix that I created for the guys on the Discord. <laughs> it's for places where you don't want anything growing. <laughs> but the environmentalists would have a stroke if you know somebody were to go out and Chernobyl, you know, a couple hundred feet of fence line, they'd have a stroke. Even more so than them going out to mow it or string trim it. <laughs> That's an unfortunate situation. And you know, you hate to see that because it's, it means property damage it means lives are changed it means people are displaced mm -hmm. all that stuff i mean it, it's it's a horrible horrible thing and to think that you know it was just some dipshit with a push mower that you know uh kind of started that whole ball rolling is it, it's it's unfortunate and so i don't know i mean i think for the you know the people like me in the midwest that have, are very very far removed from that stuff I've never seen a forest fire. I don't know. I've seen grass fires. I've seen stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I I think it just, you know, kind of comes back to that whole awareness and education piece for the, uh, the crowd out there that may not uh, know what they should be doing, when they should be doing it, and more importantly, where they should be doing it. Exactly, because for myself, I would not be operating a lot of machinery when I'm surrounded by dry or dryish tall brush. I'd be nervous because here in Hawaii, most of the islands are ba basically a brush fire and forest fire waiting to happen at this time of the year, literally. At least you know where it'll stop. <laughs> That's no comfort, Ryan. <laughs> And, and that's not before torches millions of dollars worth of houses. Not yeah, before just don't let it get on the other side. Keep it on the other <laughs> side of the poly, Ray, and you'll be okay. It'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to the next topic here of the burns, and this is the effect of foliar applications of humic acid on growth, visual quality, nutrient content and root parameters of perennial ryegrass. So uh, I was deep in the, in the world of online plant journals here, and this was published in the journal of plant nutrition, which actually is a valid journal. I, I came to find out. Uh, I wasn't quite sure at first when I found it because it was conducted in Iran and nothing against Iran. Um, but you know, I just wanted to make sure that w what I was reading here was, uh, was valid, but this, this journal is actually, uh, is, is very legitimate. So, um, and what's interesting is, is that they looked specifically at perennial ryegrass and the effects that, uh, that humic acid had on it. And, uh, the two, the, the one thing that I'm going to comment here that I'll take, a uh, if you go to the other one, J pink, I'll, I'll talk about that is, um, what we see is the uh, humic acid rate. So we're talking about milligrams per liter, per liter here. So overall concentrations that we're making. And to put this into perspective, what this kind of rate is um, at a, a hundred uh, milligrams per liter would equate out to 
Um, well, where did I where did I do this? So this would be point one two ounces per thousand uh, per gallon. Point uh, one two ounces per gallon uh, applied applied foliarly. So anything beyond that, we actually saw a decrease in root diameter, uh, root length, and root surface area. And uh, and it was uh, not necessarily linear that we saw it, but it was actually cubic in the way that it saw it. So as you increase rates, the mm. the effects became more and more detrimental towards uh, the uh, root parameters of perennial ryegrass. So I thought that was interesting. What do you guys take away from from this here? Well, not having read the entire paper, I think it stands to reason with like what we just talked about with the humicoated urea study, right? That there is a very fine line of diminishing returns and to apply those materials exogenously to a plant and expect there to be uh, a linear relationship to the more I apply, the better that things look, perform, whatever is probably a fool's errand because there's virtually nothing that we can do that with in turf, right? There's always going to be you know, that, that ceiling, right, of where we have uh, positive plant performance, positive gains in terms of uh, what we're seeing year over year, you know, in a perennial crop. So for me, again, this just goes back to that there's so much that we don't know. And a lot of times when you're evaluating products, right, you're showing data. You know, this is one thing that uh, I suck at math. I'll, I will tell you point blank i am awful at math but the class that like for whatever reason made the most sense to me in college was stats like i freaking loved stats and digging down deep and trying to figure out like why this is what the data is showing and even if it's good data that we can actually go on and so i think the 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 thing here is that you know marketers are going to come at this all the time of taking very 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 limited data and presenting it in a way that makes you feel good about a product right that that's their job mm-hmm. and, and you can, we, we certainly get pissed at them, uh, individually and, uh, collectively, but I think real quick, go ahead. And I, there, there was some overlap with the previous one we looked at and I'm going to read just real quick in the abstract and, and we'll take away the two different fields from the two different ones that said the exact same thing related to this aspect of it. Right? So, Remember the other test looked at the de- uh, the the effect that that took place on uh, phosphorus, potassium, you know your micronutrients. You know mm-hmm. there was that supplemental information that was there, uh, and it did overlap. Except this one looked at it from a leaf tissue concentration. Right, results showed uh-huh. that leaf phosphorus, potassium, zinc content, fresh and dry weight, chlorophyll content, and root fresh weights were not affected by humic acid. So we tended to see that from the other one. But there was no mention of that whatsoever, because when you say that, it doesn't have the same level of positive reinforcement to the information you wanted to show in the study, like what we saw at Iowa State, right? The big, the big thing there was that, okay, you can reduce nitrogen rates and still get 100% of, of uh, performance from the plant as if 100% of the nitrogen rates were applied. However, it had no impact on any of the other nutrients. If, if you looked at the supplemental data, you could see that. And here, it highlights that, right? And so when you when you read this, it has a much more, I would suspect that that is something that the Andersons would not want published because it does not paint in a favorable light the outcome of what that study showed. So exactly to your point right there, what's that? 
It didn't paint it black. Yeah. <laughs> didn't paint it. It didn't paint it black because, and this is, you know, believe it or not, these are the kind of studies that I love. And you know why I love these kind of studies? Because they're not funded by manufacturers. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, they, these are the opposite of buy my shit. It's more like an unbiased and independent researcher doing the work. I mean, I love this, this kind of stuff. <laughs> so, th and this is the thing I was, I, you know, I, 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 people were talking about the, uh, the turf truth, uh, trailer of him, come, him or her, it, they, what we, we should ask them how they identify and what kind of pronouns they would like to use. I think that's very important that we know that. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> anyhow, um, you know, that we just do, there is too much out there, right? In the way, and I said it before, means and methods, right? The things that we're trying to account for, the variables that we're trying to control or take stock of, we absolutely don't have the methods to do, right? With how far we want to push the science and how quickly we want to do it. The means, we don't have the money to do this stuff. We don't have the money to continue to fund independent research. And so that's that's my beef right now with the state of uh, the industry as a whole is and, and I get it, I get why it's like that it's been like that for almost 20 years now basically since 9-11 um, that that things have gone that way um, and it's just it, it's I don't know how we edge back off that cliff to get good data Ray what do you think well what I think is somehow some way we need to get back to doing research where it is not funded by an individual product manufacturer. I mean, that that's basically uh, a case of, if that's going to happen, that's a case of the fox guarding the hen house, and that is not an acceptable position. So, you know, that that's I, I feel that that's the only way out. That's the only way out. And, uh, you know, let me ask you guys this. Barring sponsoring by a manufacturer, how does one get money to do research? <laughs> a hope and a prayer? Exactly. A, a hope and a prayer. And, you know, this really speaks to you know what i was thinking about is okay why have an epa why have a an fda why have any of these agencies when all the money uh for the for the research is either provided by the pharmaceutical industry provided by anti-vaxxers provided by you know special interest groups of various flavors you know it's it's just you know a far cry from how it used to be because by the way are you guys familiar with what the usda used to do 
pre nineteen pre nineteen ninety or even pre nineteen eighty the u s d a used to do all the research funded by the buy my ship people pre nineteen eighty in the you know when when the u s d a was founded their purpose was to basically evaluate and regulate you know agricultural products you know fertilizers you know chemicals whatever usda and usda did not accept money from product manufacturers at all it was all basically you know here's a you know a federal budget go get this done <laughs> and it was done without an agenda yeah i just i don't think i don't think we're going to get back to that point and i think this is where the uh the movement of independent researchers is is going to um to grow and you know i go back to um michael woods and pace turf um, who have dumped a, a lot of time, energy, and effort into this, um, but I, you know, I, and you, you'll you'll notice they don't dive into the uh, specificity of of individual products, you know, but they'll kind of take an idea or a cultural practice and then put it through its paces. And I think intentionally, they have to stay away from individual products because they'll be blacklisted. Um, my hope is is that maybe with um and and i, I want to give kudos to, to dr weaver with what he did with uh with molasses and worm power and that study there was that you know, he took on a product by name announced it and and put it through uh, a series of tests and he, he did it as a as a dissertation knowing that any kind of unfavorable outcome he may have unpacked there may have blacklisted him from ever having a career with one of those companies and I think you're going to see more of those people begin to surface one for uh, personal distinction uh, to stand out within the industry because as the, the industry grows and um, different types of characters move in, you know, where I would say it was so small to begin with, it was very much, you know, protect, protect our own, but more and more as um, outsiders move into the industry with a whole host of claims of what people in industry built, I'm trying to tap dance around this, but effectively with people with huge money behind them who are not from the industry or moving into the industry and taking and, and repeating things that have already been done and putting larger and wilder claims on them, people are going to get pissed off and improve the bullshit of it. And, and I think a lot of that is being sorted through right now, how to do that tactfully and gracefully. And it's difficult. I mean, uh, uh, trying to show grace and, and call something, uh, a steaming pile of horseshit at the same time is very difficult. So <laughs> I think it will get there. It's just, you know, we're, we're not there yet. And you know, that's kind of the beautiful thing about seeing things like this. Here's the thing. If you look up humic acid studies, especially, you know, the more recent ones, you're not going to be able to find this. It's going to be buried. You're going to find shit from the seventies before you ever find the study. Uh, because this does not draw the clicks that a positive reinforcement study does. Right. And uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just where we are. But I wanted to highlight that there are people out there that are that are showing the other side of things. 
And uh, in this particular instance, detrimental effects that occurred to specifically perennial ryegrass in a certain set of conditions. So interesting. All right, moving on to the next one here. This is beautiful, absolutely stunning. Uh, ditching grass could help your backyard thrive. Uh, and what, what is this uh, subheadline here? Lawns are ecological dead space. Experts explain how to design a more eco-friendly yard. And this is by Tick Root. Um, whoever wants to chime in on this first, feel free. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do a little digging into the writer of this article. And then we'll, we'll revisit uh, some of the highlights here in this. I can tell you that the guy just started working at the post this year. So he's like their one of their environmental guys writing on issues like that. So the thing that, that gets me about this, and I, I was the one who threw this up there, is uh, here you have, uh, you know, I thought we were supposed to tell both sides of the story, right? And I don't see anybody in this article that is a turf grass professional, a turf grass uh, researcher, academic, anything of that nature, right? To push back on either some of the claims in terms of facts or some of the basically uh, opinions, right, of this this gentleman that the, that they go at. So I actually, it's kind of funny because this, this article uh, popped up. It's almost a month old now, but prior to this, I saw somebody link a video from the guy that's in this article and bear with me if i see if i can find it here and guy, real quick, i'll give bro- you this guy's background uh a ba in international politics and economics and an ma in science journalism um and he has specifically opted to cover climate and climate solutions for the post uh, some of his other uh, articles here is <laughs> developer of luxury condos offered next door surfside building $400,000 mid complaints over construction document show majority of Florida condo board quit in 2019 and squabbling residents dragged out plans for repairs. Um, Earth is now trapping unprecedented amount of heat. NASA says a Senate bill would ban toxic forever chemicals and makeup, which new study found are often unlabeled. Um, so, Okay. Okay, he he writes about it. I'm not seeing anything deeper into this except for large, large macro statistics. So you've got you've got to dig deeper on this guy though. This uh, the guy's name is Doug or Douglas Tallamy. So he's quoted in the article, and he's the one. He you know who he reminds me of is uh, Matt. You'll appreciate this is Chip Osborne. Remember your mm. friend Chip? I'll never forget. so again this 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 guy's job that he has carved out the niche for and i'm not begrudging him for doing so right there is a niche for what he's talking about to go into a you know national print media uh newspaper and say that this is all wrong and this doesn't work you know and and painting with blanket facts of 40 to 50 million acres of lawn and then talking about three trillion gallons of water and, and uh, those are facts. Those are hard facts, but let's push back and talk about what else grass does. Right. So quickly Ray and Matt, if, if you can go through some of the, the benefits of turf grass and why else it's important in the environment. Yeah. Leaf and plant density. It is one of the highest uh, performing photo, uh, one of the high has one of the highest photosynthetic rates of any of the plants that are out there. And if you want to talk about carbon capture, 
uh, carbon capture wise, uh, an acre of turf grass is uh, of, of uh, uh, maintained under best management practices is going to sequester more CO2 than an acre of forest or native pasture land any day of the week. And, and that is, that is proven through research. So, um, the fact that it's immediately lumped into this uh, negative thing is, is not necessarily there. We also have the aspect of, uh, um, um, a heat, uh, that's going to play a piece. And also the, the fact of filtering, uh, turf grasses are one of most, our most efficient filters that we have out there as well. Uh, and then from the community aspect, the, uh, having, you know, playing surfaces for, for children to go out and roam around, uh, and, and don't get me wrong. I think it's fine for kids to roam out in the woods too. Uh, but I also think there's something important about, about learning to compete and, and, and have a space to be able to compete with friends or neighbors or whatever the, the, uh, activity may be. If you want to kick a soccer ball around and, and develop that skill set, you know, oftentimes you need a yard to do it. I'm not going to lie. If my backyard was a giant Creek, it would be very difficult for me to play soccer back there. I'm just saying, Ray, what do you got? Well, and, uh, here's what I got. Uh, I have an another yet another point to add to, you know, the carbon sequestration, you know, heat sequestration. I also consider maintained turf grass a very healthy and safe environment, especially around people's homes. Now, but 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 wait a minute, how can that be safe and healthy? Okay, maintained turf grass does not or is less likely to harbor things like ticks, snakes, centipedes, scorpions, or mosquitoes. I mean, I just, uh, because I, I just, you know, am uh, rather surprised by the whole back to nature movement that these people propose because I know in my area, if I went back to nature, uh, I better make friends with all the centipedes and mosquitoes. So that's one thing is that, you know, why is the lawn there? Because people want managed and maintained pest populations around their homes, right? Mm -hmm. Vertebrate and invertebrate. So <laughs> the, the other thing, too, that people commonly forget or don't realize or whatever, you know, number one... Uh, noise pollution it sounds stupid but as a grass one. actually grass will actually absorb a lot of sound in an urban environment even a suburban environment so the other thing and the most important thing right of a the function of turf grass in particular is what runoff right runoff prevention runoff exactly. mm -hmm. so we're not going to see that if i have you know say a uh wildflower or you know some other native plant lawn like the coefficient runoff of my front yard or whatever is going to be substantially higher this is something that they're seeing now too uh where you know in certain parts of the southwest and further out west where they have synthetic turf lawns and some of these places that that do get rain right uh, appreciable rain that the runoff rates are exceedingly high and it's actually worse overall in terms of the flash flooding that it can create and things like that so all things considered i don't know that this guy who is 
and he's so uh, i've looked him up and i remember him now i remember watching a youtube video of him and w- maybe we'll we'll dive into that on a thursday thursday sometime but in any event uh he's an entomologist at the university of delaware and he's wrote, written a couple books and the first one was about you know again getting back to nature and then this most recent one was you know kind of rethinking the american landscape and starting with the lawn so I, I, again i i think it's it's time better spent in my mind of you know how do we right the wrongs of people that are currently out there because you're not going to get rid of 40 to 50 million acres of a perennial crop it's impo- I, i'm not going to say it's impossible but it's pretty no, damn hard it comes down to the to the education of your average landscaper right and i think the importance of, of functional landscapes is there and you know everybody mm-hmm. wants a dwarf hinoki on the corner of their of their house right but um there are lots of native plant options that you can uh cohabitate with having a lawn that that is going to make everything function that much better together and i think a balanced approach like that or if you have a drainage area that you want to landscape into something you know instead of just promoting something like and being attentive about it and make that keeping that uh, uh harbors the breeding ground of mosquitoes there's lots of things that you can do that are very aesthetically appealing in terms of stormwater management or a functional landscape or that's going to promote biodiversity um and it doesn't start with as is suggested here in this article um, and specifically what he says is we're not powerless. The first thing you can do is start laying down mulch. Mulch will kill grass. And like, no, this, no, that's not the first thing you can do. What about ripping out your, your hedgerow of boxwoods and putting in some, some rhododendrons dendrons and, and azaleas underneath it that are native to your area. I'm just using that as an example, right? That's, that's one thing. That's one thing you can do. Selecting native plants to populate your landscape has a tremendous environmental benefits. It can be equally as aesthetic as all your uh, ornamental cultivars that we see out there. And uh, and you can feel good about it. And you can have a cohabitat between uh, a manicured lawn and also a, 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 a ecologically healthy um, system in place too. So I don't know. I think that would be the, the better approach to things rather than, uh, uh, you know, a nuke in the yard and having some dingy ass uh, little blue stem front yard with some milkweed <laughs> in, interspersed and some some cone flowers. And while that's beautiful, and if you got an open space and you want to you want to seed into that, and that's fine, I totally get it. I'll give you an example where I go run the park up the road from me is um, uh, it, it was planted in all native species, right? Seeded, and uh, and right now it is all horseweed. Horseweed has invaded mm-hmm. pretty much everything. And so you've got the occasional little blue stem that's sticking up somewhere in the middle. You got a little bit of wild carrot here and there, and it is horseweed from cover to cover and wild blackberry and, uh, and, and, and pears, Bradford pears coming up through all of it. Mm. So you see where it's just being overrun by all these invasives, right? And so you're trying to get back to this native landscape and this native, well, what's the first thing you got to do? Well, you got to go in here and probably make some herbicide applications in order to start to get this thing yep. to where it needs to be. Uh, because in, you can have this pipe dream of chasing uh, ecological diversity, and that's great, but it still requires the same level of maintenance that we employ towards turf grass as it does towards your functional landscape as well. 
That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, we'll move on to another one here, and this is a great one. I think it's important that we have to touch on this, and I'll read the headline. The former seed company exec uh, of, of Jacqueline was sentenced in fraud and mon- money laundering plot. So for those of you that don't know, um, the former general uh, manager of Jacqueline Seed uh, got caught doing some little shaky, shaky things of selling <laughs> maybe some bad seed here <laughs> and there. That's an understatement. Or or negotiating some uh, seed prices with him pocketing some off the top. Uh, Ryan, give us some more details on this because I know I know you're you're kind of up to snuff on this. Yeah, so the guy essentially was the the CEO of the company of one of the largest seed producers for uh, turfgrass seed in the country, and what they what he soon figured out was that you know we've got higher end elite cultivars that don't yield nearly as much as some of the lower end cultivars that yield a lot and with all the orders that had come in he started instructing a very select few people to say basically it would be like um if you didn't know any better taking the buick emblem off of the buick and putting a cadillac emblem on it and selling it as a cadillac right well it's all grassy you have to trust your suppliers, right? You have to trust your growers. You have to trust the seed manufacturer, seed companies to be able to provide that product. So that was one thing that they were doing is they were basically doing a bait and switch and charging the higher price. That was number one. Number two, the guy was uh, running up his expense tab. So he would use the, he used an outside travel agent and was saying, you know, Hey, I'm going to go over here to China because there's a, a ton of golf courses that were being built in China uh, back then and trying to push you know, their seat, obviously, saying he was going to fly first class, that he was staying in five-star hotels, all this stuff. He would fly economy. He would stay at like, you know, the Chinese version of Motel 6 and then submit fake invoices and then pocket the cash. He'd get a kickback from the travel agent, and boom. So he's pocketing that money. And then the last thing they did was they made up an LLC to run all their foreign transactions through and kick back a bunch of money there. So all told, this dude was somewhere in the neighborhood of like uh, 15 or so million dollars that he uh, essentially funneled through and embezzled. So I don't Yikes. know. I mean, Ray, have, yeah, it's, it's not like, oh, hey, I forgot to, you know, my, my drawer was a little over and I, I, I went ahead and took that money. This was some serious like federal pound me in the ass prison stuff. So, uh, Ray, have you ever heard of anything like this in your career, like on the ag side, on a- anywhere? I mean, this this was a pretty sophisticated operation by, let's just call it a spade a spade. This guy is an absolute sociopath. Actually, that is all too common and routine in the industry where I'm at. It's typical. It's so typical. And, you know, the common story is the company or the business is nothing more than a shell operation for organized crime so (laughs) this is not this is not new to me or special to me and oh uh 15 million dollars in my world that's small money that's small money actually where i'm from because you want to talk about thugs and creeps you know i got them I, I i see them i mean but how it goes down 
if it goes down, is all of a sudden uh, all the alphabets of the federal agencies are at their place conducting a raid. Yeah, I mean, so, how hard do you think <laughs> this guy shit his pants when the FBI showed up? Like uh, one to ten. I mean, are we talking like he might he might have shit out that Happy Meal that he had back in 1975 that hadn't fully made its way out yet. He definitely <laughs> turned his turtle blooms into a fudge factory, right? Look at this yep. guy. Look at the picture yep. of this guy. He, well, yeah, you know what? yeah. No, he he probably was crapping his pants. Because, you know, FBI and IRS and the local, you know, tax agency would show up. Because, by the way, do you know how most organized criminals are caught? Tell me, Ray. Uh, People turn on them? No. It's because the taxes, the taxes don't, you know, line up. And next thing you know, you have, for example, IRS and Hawaii Department of Taxation on their ass. And the books don't line up. The books don't make sense. And next thing you know, because the IRS cross-reports suspicious activity to agencies like DEA and FBI, you know, La 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 la. <laughs> you know, yeah, it all goes uh, bad from there. <laughs> and I, I love the way he was doing this. Um, uh, as part of the scheme, Claypool directed Simplot's payment of more than twelve million in rebates and commissions to entities that were posing as foreign sales partners, but were in fact fronts for Claypool's co-conspirators and embezzling those funds. Uh, the co-conspirators then trans- transmitted part of their illegally conceived windfall from accounts in Hong Kong to real estate investments in Hawaii under Claypool's control. Years later, he sold the real estate and wired the proceeds to investment accounts in Spokane as part of an intricate money laundering scheme. Wow. All right. That's going to take us through the burns. Now we're going to move on to the returns. <laughs> la, 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 la. so the returns we're going to bring up positive and wins in the news from this week's headlines we're going to go deeper on some of the headlines and hopefully explain the science behind why it's amazing if indeed it is there we're going to start with article number one here and it is weed electrocution electrocution research sparks interest as herbicide resistant impedes current methods uh, so this is interesting and great because I don't know a whole lot from an electrical standpoint on how to kill a weed, but it does make sense that weeds are full of salt ions, which would make as good conductors of electricity. And and the beautiful thing about it, too, is um, uh, we are definitely facing a crisis in the uh, uh, weed resistant uh, management sector. So beautiful to see. What do you guys take on it? I've never seen this before. The only thing I've seen in terms of uh, pest control in that in that sense is uh, there's the UV light that they'll pull over top of, uh, particularly on sports fields because it's got flat grade, but um, to try and control some uh, disease pathogens. And there's some work out there suggesting it, it can work. But this, oh, wow. So this oh, is man. just like a almost like a like a weed wick, except it's electric fence weed a wick. Tesla coil. 
<laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. So they're well, actually targeting like, the things that have grown above the canopy and then zapping the absolute bejesus out of it. They're teasing them, Matt. They're they're giving them the teaser and don't tease okay. me, bro. I've uh, I've heard from one guy here locally where supposedly he runs 220 volt electrodes into the ground to control nutsedge. I don't know how well it actually works, but for me personally, I have two concerns. One, I don't love the idea of being accidentally electrocuted. And number two... Not that you would ever know it. No. Where does all of the power come from to power the... You know the charged, uh, you know bar that they're hitting the weeds with because uh, there there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah, Aside you're from getting a, lit up. A giant SO cord out there uh, powering your uh, your weed electrocutor. Old Sparky, we'll mm-hmm. call it Old Sparky. Um, yeah, Sparky, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's some serious, serious concerns there. Uh, maybe buy, maybe you build a coal-fired power plant right next to your farm. You know, you, oh, you the environmentalists will love you for that. Yeah, the environmentalists uh, will love you for it, though. <laughs> one of the good things here is uh, is that if, particularly in water hemp, sixty-five percent of the seeds uh, are become non-viable as a result of the electrocution. So. Uh, you know, shooting a, a seeding uh, plant like that uh, will also eliminate a, a good portion of the uh, of the viable seeds. However, um, it electrocutes the weed with 15,000 volts of electricity using a 110,000 watt generator on the back of a tractor. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You, you see, I mean, that that is enough power to send me back to the back to the future and tell my parents don't get married that that's that's how much uh, juice there is in the in there so you know again how and where is all of that power being generated because ryan you and i have talked about this before right all of yeah. these alternate weed control methods have an energy cost like for example Here's what I think about, you know, on my end. Mm-hmm. I incinerate a lot of weeds, right, Ryan? I incinerate a lot. And blowtorch. I need I need shit tons of propane. Okay, I need shit tons of propane. I mean, people ask me sometimes, uh, Ray, what's up? I mean, are you going to uh, cook lunch in between, uh, you know, jobs because they see the 20-pound <laughs> propane cylinder on the truck. It's like, "Oh, is it barbecue? I said, no, this is just for, you know, certain weeds in certain places that are going to get lit. And they tell well, it's them got carbon in it. They so see it's, organic, it. it's organic weed control, right? It's got carbon yeah, in it. But, however, <laughs> I'm doing the very thing that I know bugs out the environmentalists. And you know what that is? That? I'm burning fossil fuels. I'm burning nah. fossil fuels. Propane is a fossil fuel, Ryan. <laughs> but and, you know, and this, it's, it's like, this is the whole thing. 
it's this it's this I, I agree 100 percent right that there there are all these trade-offs that nobody is willing to uh talk about recognize talk, talk about right that uh, you know and this is not to get too far off the subject here but you know okay hey you want to take a ra- roundup you want to take away glyphosate what do you want me to use now vinegar do you want me to use uh glufosinate which is more toxic right to to the applicator i mean this is the kind of stuff that when you don't look at the bigger picture and i understand i'm preaching to the choir here but it's more so for uh the listeners that that, that you start considering everything that you're talking about trying to do and consider your alternatives and people are like i don't care what the alternative is i just don't want you to do this how dumb is that like really like how how uh myopic and just tunnel vision stupid tunnel vision oh yes just tunnel vision yeah (laughs) well i don't care because you'll stop doing that and i'll feel better about it like okay well i'm just gonna go over here and you know poison the oceans whatever well it's like or or else uh they they even they get even more nuts because now I'm lighting a fire in the middle of the city. I've actually had a little bit of pushback about that from some West Coast transplants, uh, where they got all fucking bent out of shape. Excuse my language, uh, because instead of spraying. I elected to burn off vegetation that was growing right near a storm runoff area. And that storm runoff, next stop for it is literally the Pacific Ocean. So I elected, I better not spray here. I'm going to get out the Burnsomatic. It's go time. <laughs> Burnsomatic. <laughs> yeah, but then they got mad because, oh, ah, smoke. Well, you know what? They're lucky they weren't living in Hawaii in the 1970s and the 1980s because you know what there you know what we used to do here in Hawaii in the 1970s and the 1980s? Did you burn your trash? No, we used to light off hundreds of acres of sugarcane field right before harvest. Oh uh, no. Okay, we used to do that. We used to just light it and then the tractors would come and pick up the cane and press out the sugar. <laughs> but that all went away because the environmentalist said, you can't burn. So the sugar plantations packed up and went to states and countries where they were allowed to burn. How's them apples? <laughs> It's the way it goes, right? You go where the uh, least path of resistance lies. And mm-hmm. in this case, what a great way to put a bow on the electro- electrocution of weeds, right? The least path of resistance. Come on. That was a, <laughs> that, that was a good one. That, you gotta... that was a good setup. <laughs> least path of resistance. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we'll use that to segue into our uh, final return here. And, uh, and we have a local lawn care guy that saved a man's life in Florida. And, uh, and fortunately he, he, he I, Never mind. I had a stupid Florida man joke that I'm just going to... Florida man? 
Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Tony was, uh, pushing his lawnmower around the neighborhood, but however, as he was walking to work, he saw a neighbor in need, Uh poor guy that we see in the, uh, in the picture here was, uh, was leaving work or I don't know, that may have been Tony, the guy who saw it, uh, but a guy was leaving his house on his way to work and, uh, and had a seizure and, uh, and Tony oh, gave it his absolute best effort to, to try and stop this guy's car to keep him from driving into something. He saw he's having a convulsion. The poor guy was having a seizure. And, uh, and of course the car, the house where he comes to a stop and the homeowners tell Tony and the guy who's having a seizure to get him off our lawn, uh, get him out of here, have him die somewhere else, which is, uh, I think a state of the, uh, of the, of the union here where we are. If you see someone having a seizure on your yard, please do not tell them to get off my lawn. I mean, like, I know there are some lawn care nuts that will listen to this, but get that shit out of your brain. Be a compassionate human being and uh, and don't reply to a seizure with, uh, get off my damn grass, you son of a bitch. Go die somewhere else. That's that's very classless. Um, yeah, I like, I like your Florida horrible. accent there. That, that, that's just horrible, <laughs> okay? And, and by the way, I I could Did see you get that off my lawn. I can't have you die that, here. My homeowner's insurance will go up by forty five dollars a month, and I'm not paying actually, that for Matt, your damn seat. Actually, Matt, it can end up even worse here in Hawaii, because here would be the scenario: some, uh, like say Chinese national or something, you know, sees something, you know. Someone enters their property, and you know what they do? They call the police saying, oh, there's a trespasser, there's a burglar. Oh, my God, help me, save me. And you know what's going to happen to that unfortunate person found, you know, in that property who probably doesn't mean any harm? You know what's going to happen, Ryan? What? The police are going to show up, guns drawn, and they're going to unload clips in that guy. So Hawaii's were swatting initiated? Is that is that what you're trying to tell me? Yes. Yes. I mean, the trend is now is for the police, Honolulu Police Department, to do extrajudicial executions. <laughs> Before I just we like... had... Way too deep yeah, into the wormhole I, I, there. Yeah. I, let's check and see what's going on in the mailbag and who didn't get shot and killed today. Yeah. Uh, Jake, we got. Do we have any emails in the mailbag that we can cover? You've got mail. N- not yet. No, no, we've not got yet. we've got no emails we, in the mailbag. I've However, got. A, if you I'd like I, to I, submit an email. Oh wait, wait. I've wait. got one. I've got one. Look at this. I got one that sent sent to me. One that was sent to me. This is a, a off the wall question. I I did not have the answer. I know that it's like moss control for liverwort. Liverwort. Oh. I had nothing. Oh, for the for the weed. Uh, yeah, I had nothing. Not f- not warts on your f- liver. No, flumioxazin. We, we don't talk. In- flumioxazin. <laughs> really. Fry it. That's a th- fry it. Yeah, is this in a in a in a yard or in a uh, yeah. uh, in a landscape bed in a yard? It's a, well, it's if you yard. if you spray flumioxazin in a yard, the grass is going with it. So, um, what about a fluoroxapir and triclopyr combo? Uh, just looking at actually, it 
Actually, liverworts are not actually plants that respond to auxins. So mm-hmm. next best bet is something like sulfentrazone, carfentrazone. Because that was my thought, because it's like a moss, right? It's like a moss, or actually in that netherworld between a vascular plant and an algae. It's in that netherworld, so I'd be hammering down with something like, oh, dismiss NXT, for example. Yep. Light, light it up. <laughs> but in, it like up. in a landscape, like in a landscape bed or in a nursery situation, that's where they use uh, oxidiazone or flumioxazin or even oxyfluorophin as the pre hmm. and post. Are any of you familiar with oxyfluorophin? I'm not. Oxyfluorophin? No. You're not. No. Brand name for that is Goal. Now, I like Goal for non-crop areas where I need to spare trees. Because Goal is essentially... Flumioxazin or oxidiazone, except a lot hotter. Yeah, I've never. If it's hotter than flumioxazin, I mean that's that's got to be some uh, some white lightning you got there because uh, uh, flumioxazin is is pretty damn toasty as it is. Well, and the best part about oxyfluorophin is that. At the use rates that it's used, uh, it's normally a six to eight months pre-emergent as well. Jeez. And it likes it pl- likes to be partnered with diquat or paraquat. <laughs> because it turns, okay. it turns the diquat or the paraquat systemic. Because what the oxyfluorophin does is it shuts down photosynthesis of the weed long enough for the diquat to translocate to some degree. Uh, mm. That's pretty well, interesting. There you All go right, on Matt. your liverwort. Uh, uh, no. right, Matt, go someone ahead. did go just email uh, mail at thegrassfactor.tv and they wanted to know what it would take for me to get you playing lawn mowing simulator on stream. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a thing cold by the day way in hell uh i have no idea i mean i'll i'll play it i mean it, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me Was, is, can i just google that uh, mowing simulator yeah See, i hate mowing grass so um i mean that really the only way i would ever enjoy mowing grass maybe in a video game um but that's it planned release date they have a demo out i'll download it I need steam. What is steam? I don't know. I'll figure this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, 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 try, we'll try and get that worked out. If you want to participate in the mailbag, you can always send us an email, mail at thegrassfactor.tv. All right, we are going to uh, have uh, our closing remarks right here. Ryan DeBay, send us out with something good here. Something good. Well, hey, you know, it's uh, it's the first episode. Uh, we I think we have successfully launched ourselves out of the pilot and into this. Uh, I think we only said the F word once 
Ray, which is <laughs> pretty, pretty good for us. It's pretty good for us. Let, let, let's be honest. We could we could really muck it up here really good. Uh, and maybe we'll get in that. Maybe we'll get a little bit more blue as we go. But uh, no, it's a different <laughs> format than our Thirsty Thursday. It's just us talking and it's trying to get into some stuff that is turf related, isn't turf related and just just jamming on it. So I always enjoy talking to you guys and I had fun. Me too. Ray, send us out with the closing thought. You got anything to say? Well, it is, you know, a beautiful uh, Sunday where I'm at. Uh, although I do feel like I'm in a steam room, but otherwise it's beautiful here. Uh, and I just want everybody to stay safe and, uh, you know, stay tuned and look for us for the next show. <laughs> There you go. There you have it. We'll be coming at you again soon. Uh, if you're checking this on the repeat, and uh, if you're looking where to find us, find us on any of your favorite podcast apps, Spotify, all that fun stuff, Google, Apple. We're, we're, we're going there. We're going big, and we're, we're not going home. We're going to continue this going. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next one. You're listening to 